And then we'll worship the Lord together. stop the Lord who can stop the Lord Almighty who can stop the Lord Almighty who can stop the Lord Almighty who can stop the Lord sing it again who can stop who can stop the Lord
Would you sing that chorus one more time? Our God is the lion. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before him. Our God is the lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. Amen, amen. Let's confess out of Daniel chapter 3 that God is our only king and we will worship no other God other than him. And so let's read this together out of Daniel 3, verse 17 and 18. Our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Amen. We worship just God. There's a grace, there's a grace when the heart is undefined. Another way when the walls are closing in. And when I look at the space between where I used to be and this reckoning, I know I will never be alone. Was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the waters holding back the seas. Should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free? There is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. There is another in the fire All my dead left for dead beneath the waters I'm no longer a slave to my sin anymore and Should I fall in the space between What remains of me and this reckoning Either way, I won't bow to the things of this world. And I know I will never be alone. There is another in the fire. Standing next to me. There is another in the waters. Holding back the sea. Should I ever need reminding? Power set me free. There is a 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Amen. alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are still when striving seems my all in all here in the love of Christ I'll stand
no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. with me. Father God, we love you, Lord, and are so grateful to know that, Lord, whatever we are walking through, whatever difficulties we face, we know that you are standing with us. Father, we thank you that we can hold on to the promise that one day we will get to be with you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. Pray that you would just be within, within each one of us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Fourth through sixth graders, go ahead and head to Brandy and Richard in the back to go to class. And everyone else, greet each other. And maybe, Malia just asked us this question in the green room this morning. Maybe share a TV show that someone might be surprised that you watch.
Everyone has a lot to say about their weird TV show favorites. Well, welcome everyone to Redemption Arcadia. My name is Stephanie Shoemate. I'm the Director of Operations here. As a local expression of the body of Christ, we seek to embody the gospel in all of life throughout the Arcadia area. If you're new here, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We hope that you'll connect with Andrea at the Connect Desk and learn a little bit more about how to get involved. Redemption Church is one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. I have just a couple of quick announcements for you this morning. First, if you have considered Redemption Arcadia your home for a while but are not yet a member, we have a membership class that begins this Wednesday. It's two weeks. It's at 6.30 here in the sanctuary. Please visit our website for more instructions and also to RSVP so that we know how many people to expect and can plan for you. Second, if you are a photographer, a videographer, an artist, a graphic designer, and we don't know about you and you would like to serve using your gifts in that way at church, please email me. We're looking to build our creatives team. We have an amazing graphic designer who has served us for many, many years, but we're just hoping to give her some help and not put so much on her all the time. So if you are any of those things, please shoot me an email and we'll get you all connected. And now if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Good morning. Today's reading is from John chapter 12, verses 27 and 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Whoa. Thanks, man. That's okay. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Good to see you again after my three-Sunday hiatus. I'm glad to be back. My name is Pastor Frank, and you might be surprised to know that I watch Gilmore Girls. I'm totally serious. I, I know that's strange. It might be the only show I watch that I'm allowed to admit, admit to in church. Um, but uh, I do watch it, and I, I, I appreciate really good writing. And the writing in the Gilmore Girls is sharp. It's really good. So anyway, I just thought I'd answer Malia's question for everybody and get that cleared up. So sorry if I offended any of you. Gilmore Girls, what kind of pastor could he be? Yeah, I get that. All right, so 
Um, I want to give you Memorial Day greetings. Um, uh, Memorial Day was, uh, you know, my father served in World War II for three years in the Navy in the South Pacific um, on the uh, destroyer Farragut. And uh, he was able to, he did, he did not in a physical sense give his life for the defense of this country, but he had many friends who did. And at least in an emotional sense, he gave his life for this country because his experience in World War II affected him the rest of, the rest of his life. He passed away when he was 94. Even wrote two books about uh, his experience. And so uh, I just want to recognize and, and uh, say thank you to anybody who is in here who has served, has had family members who have served. And, and even if they didn't physically give their lives, they gave their life to the service of this country. Really appreciate that. It's an important holiday. It was my father's favorite uh, holiday. Um, about the membership class, uh, I, I just want to say a little bit more about that. that that's going to be these next two Wednesday nights. Uh, Trey and I are going to be leading that. And uh, the first night, uh, we, we really would encourage you to come to both nights. Don't cherry pick what it is that you just specifically want to know about. Um, uh, the, come to the whole thing so that you get a full understanding. And we would hope that before you come, you do read the packet. Because Trey and I are not going to read the packet to you. Uh, we're going to cover some things, but we're not going to read the packet to you. The first night, we're going to talk about the history and the formation and the operation of Redemption Church and what it's like to have 10 congregations that is one, uh, actually one church. And then the second night, we'll give kind of an overview of the doctrine um, of, of Redemption Church. Both nights, we're going to reserve time for uh, questions. There, there is childcare uh, both nights. And one of the nights, and we really need RSVPs for this, one of the nights, the second night, June 9th, uh, we are going to have dinner before. So uh, the first night, June 2nd, is 6.30 to 8. The second night, if you want dinner, also come at 6, and then we'll start the, uh, the class at 6.30. So uh, if you have any questions about that, look on our website. There are more details there, or contact um, the office. Um, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John for quite a while. Uh, this is our last week in the Gospel of John for nine weeks. We're going to take a break this summer, and we're going to do nine weeks in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which uh, those of you that know me well know I love the Old Testament, and I can't wait to do Nehemiah because I, lo I, I love doing the Old Testament. And part of the reason for that is because if you begin to understand what's going on in the Old Testament, when you read the New Testament through that lens, the New Testament just comes much more to life for you. And even as we've been going through the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with, for instance, the Mosaic Law and how the, the Jews thought about the Mosaic Law, and if you're familiar with um, the Exodus story, uh, you, you can see shadows of that throughout uh, the Gospel of John, not only in what Jesus teaches, but also in John's narrative, which, by the way, I love John's narrative in the Gospel of John. He adds so much flavor and editorializing to it that I think is very, very helpful. Anyway, I'm excited about starting Nehemiah uh, next um, Sunday. Also, uh, I was actually gone three Sundays. I was gone eh, two and a half weeks, but three Sundays uh, because of the Flagstaff thing. I want to thank the Tylers for uh, bringing the word those three Sundays. Uh, I got to spend a couple of weeks in the Midwest. Part of it was study break, but most of it was really with our new grandson, Jamie, who is miraculously just fine. He's absolutely wonderful. I just, we couldn't be more, um, we couldn't be more grateful uh, for how that turned out. And I got to watch with Jamie his first sermon. 
So that was kind of cool. They hadn't been able to watch any sermons or go to church or anything. So uh, Tyler James was Jamie's first sermon. It's something that Jamie will always remember. So, so uh, Ty- Jamie told me afterwards, he said, that Tyler can really preach, I'm telling you. So, and, then, and, then, and then I got to also watch... <clears throat> Uh, with Jamie, his first NHL playoff game, which was exciting as well, too. So it was the Bruins and the Capitals. The Bruins, unfortunately, won. And I know we have, we have some Bruins fans here, so I, they, someday they'll come to know Jesus. Anyway, so, uh, but that was fun, too. So we just got to hang out with them and, and got some rest. Then came back, and it was already scheduled a long time ago. I went up and preached at Flagstaff, which was fun. Driving home on Sunday from Flagstaff, even at noon, is a mess. Um, So those of us who are here today on a three-day weekend, aren't you glad that we're not in traffic? See, we're really the privileged ones. We're not in traffic. Uh, And then so coming back and then right away just turning around and going up to Payson because for the first time in a couple of years because of COVID, the lead team of Redemption Church was able to have a retreat together up in Payson. So that was a really good time too. And then back on Monday night and back into um, the milieu of Redemption Arcadia and uh, it's always interesting. I always look forward to getting away. And I'm one of those weirdos that lives in the past and the, and the future and never in the present. So I couldn't wait to get away. And then as soon as I was away, I was thinking, I can't wait to get back. So now I'm back. I'm just weird. So let's move on, OK? Uh, what I want to do to start, we have about 10 verses this morning. And there's a lot there because it's God's word. But I also want to review what's in the immediate rear view window. Um, in, in uh, chapter 12. I'm not going to review all of the Gospel of John. That was generally easy to do up until this point. But now, chapter 12 is interesting in that there are so many little short stories and events that are strung together in this narrative, which is in contrast to chapter 11, where all of chapter 11 was about one thing, and that was the raising of Lazarus and the reaction to it. And now in chapter 12, we have all these little events. And I think it's helpful for today's context to understand what all of those events are and just remember what they are. So the first thing that happens in chapter 12 is that Mary anoints Jesus with her, her the pure nard, her perfume. And it's very expensive stuff. And if you read the scholars about what was going on with Mary with this nard, what you begin to understand is that You know, they didn't have financial advisors and 401ks back then. This bottle of perfume was actually her her financial security. It was her 401k. It was her her portfolio. And she took the whole thing and poured it out to anoint Jesus in her life. This was a great sacrificial act. And it was one that Judas did not care for. Again, I love John's editorializing because John's the one who tells us the reason Judas didn't like it was because you can't steal what's been poured out. But it also begs the question that when she does this, it begs the question for us, I'll do my best Dwight Schrute imitation. Question. It's not that good, I know. Anyway, question. Are Are we willing to pour what's important out to us, are we willing to pour that out and to let it go in order to anoint Jesus in our lives? It's a very serious and tough question because the context in which Mary lived in, you know, there weren't as many distractions, frankly, as we have today. There wasn't as much wealth as we have today. you, You could even argue that it was a little bit easier for Mary to do that in that time. But for us to do it, it's a little bit tougher, but it's a legitimate question that needs to be asked. Because as Tom used to say, 
God's word is timeless, and a timeless God will not create dated material, and so it's still applicable to us today. Here's the second thing that happens. The plot to kill Lazarus by the professional religious people develops. They're going to kill Lazarus now, too. It's just amazing. I mean, they want to kill Jesus. I thought, he, I thought they just wanted to kill Jesus. I, what, when did, now they want to kill Lazarus again. So I think that the, idea, the fact that they want to also kill Lazarus demonstrates three things to us about sin that we need to understand. Three characteristics of sin that are certainly applicable to us uh, today. Uh, you know, the professional religious people are going to do everything they can to protect their turf. And they're going to do that through this, first of all, the first characteristic, the incremental nature of sin. Now, I've experienced this in my life. My guess is that you have too. I am able to consider committing a sin, and I will begin to rationalize it. I will begin to justify the commission of this sin. And I'll talk about, in my own mind, how it's really just a small sin, and the result of this sin is going to be something that's very good. And I'll rationalize it, and I'll commit this little sin. But then I've committed this little sin, and now, in order to protect that little sin, maybe the secrecy of that sin or the, uh, whatever the result is of that sin, I begin to realize, oh, I'm going to have to commit a bigger sin now in order to protect that sin. That's the way sin works. That's the first characteristic of it, is that it is incremental in nature. And now here you go. This may not surprise you that I watch this, but I probably, and, I, and some of you are going to be like, don't bring that up in church. But if you look at this show through a gospel lens, it's really good. And that would be Breaking Bad. If you know, some of you are like, I'm not going to admit that I know the story, but I know the story. But here you go. If you know the story of Walter White, here's the story. Here's the narrative that Vince Gilligan is trying to get across through those five seasons. Here's what he's trying to explain to people about people. Walter White, this mild-mannered high school chemistry teacher, gets cancer. He doesn't have the money to pay for his treatment, so he's going to commit this tiny little harmless sin. He's going to make a little bit of meth in order to get some money to be able to pay for his cancer treatments. That's what happens in season one. What happens in season three? He commits his first murder because he's trying to cover up that first sin in season one, and he becomes a murderer. And, and his life becomes this story of the incremental nature of sin and how he ends up, it, it, that ends up killing him anyway. That's the irony, is his sin ends up killing him in the end. He might as well have just died from the cancer and retained his character and his integrity. So that's the first one, the incremental nature of sin. The second thing it teaches us about sin is that sin is like water in that it seeps. It goes everywhere. It infects everything. How many of you have ever discovered mold in your house? And you're like, where did that come from? How did that happen? And now you have to track down the source of where that moisture came from. Water seeps. And here's the other thing. Water always seeks the lowest possible place as well. That's sin. Sin seeps into everything, and it seeks the lowest possible place. So sin is like water. Okay? You'll never look at water the same way again, I know. And then here's the third thing. I call this the mathematics of sin. And it's something that Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors, used to say all the time. And this is true as well. The problem with sin is that always, it always takes us farther than we wanted to go. It keeps us there longer than we wanted to stay. 
and it costs us more than we were willing to pay. So in the, again, in the be very beginning, when I'm considering this sin, what I have to remember in the consideration of that sin is that it's going to take me farther than I wanted to go. It's incremental in its nature. It's going to keep me there longer than I wanted to stay because it seeps and goes everywhere. And it's going to cost me more than I was willing to pay. It always does. That's the nature of sin. These professional religious people start with, we got to get rid of Jesus. Then they get to, we got to kill Jesus. And now they got to kill anybody who's associated with Jesus or who can point to Jesus as the true Messiah and God. That's a problem. And then we have the triumphal entry, which is a week before Passover, a week before Easter. And Jesus' popularity soars, but within just a few days, his popularity is going to hit, the poles are going to plummet, he's going to hit rock bottom, and they're going to execute him. And the professional religious people, interestingly enough, they already had a conviction for Jesus, they just needed a court, they just needed a trial. That's all they needed. They just were looking around for a trial. They needed to capture him and put him on trial. It was a foregone conclusion. And then last week, the Greeks or the Gentiles, we learned, it's very important to understand, they weren't, they weren't people from Greece. They were just non-Jews. They were Gentiles. And they were sometimes called Greeks because of that. But they seek Jesus, and Jesus welcomes them and teaches them. And in their context, that was just jaw-dropping, that Jesus would welcome them in the way that way. So now, these 10 verses will start with, uh, verse 27 and part of 28. So Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That's a rhetorical question. He's not actually going to say that. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So why is Jesus' soul troubled? It's because he knows his mission, he knows his purpose. And he knows his crucifixion is just days away. And no one, not even Jesus, would look forward to being crucified. It was horrible. But he humbly submits to that because he loves us. I, the greatest love story in the world is not something that we watch in the movie theaters or read in a novel. The greatest love story ever is that Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. And... and the prayer, the hope, and I know this is hard because I struggle with it too, but the prayer and the hope is that that love would then be imputed to us in our dealings with other people as well. That kind of sacrificial uh, love. But there's another reason that this is troubling his soul, and it's a bigger reason than just the physical and emotional uh, pain of crucifixion. It's that when Jesus is on the cross, he not only pays for our sin, but he becomes sin. He becomes sin while he's on the cross. So sin has to be judged and condemned, and, it, and that sin has to face the wrath of God, but it's Jesus who becomes sin and faces the wrath of God, and that's his father. And so Jesus faces the wrath of the sin that we have committed, not that he has committed because he's sinless, and he faces that wrath from his father. He had to become the antithesis to who he is and what he is. He had to become unholy and sinful and take the father's judgment in order to make us righteous. And consider that when this happens on the cross, when Jesus becomes sin, the father has to turn away from his son. His father has never done that to him, ever. I mean, those two are connected. And that's, on, on the cross, Jesus makes seven statements or utterances. And one of them is, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment when his father turned his back on Jesus because Jesus was sin. Father, son. Think about this if you're a parent. You know, the, the pain that that must have been, mother, daughter, wh- however you want to frame it, think about the pain that's there. And it's the only time that Jesus ever spoke to his father and did not address him as father, he addressed him as God. Because at that moment, he felt like he couldn't be his father because he was now sin for us. That's the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And, and, and that's significant, and I hope you feel that tension. But also what I just read, this verse and a half, taken on its whole, I also think it's one of the most remarkable things that Jesus has ever said. And the reason for that is because he talks again about how um, God's name is going to be glorified through what's going to happen. And how God's name is glorified is through submission, humility, and sacrifice, which is pretty much what our world shuns when it comes to thinking about glory. I got to tell you, it's one of the reasons I finally just, as a pastor... And talk to any lead pastor at Redemption. They're going to tell you pretty much the same thing. It's, it's pretty much why every, all of us have gotten off social media. Because we're just so, so desperately tired of the mantra on social media of, I'm going to look out for myself first. I'm going to make sure I'm first. I'm going to look inwardly. It's all about me. Me first. Me, 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 me. What's the first value of Redemption Church? gospel-centered, and outward-focused. It's the complete antithesis to what this world wants us to be and expects us uh, to be. And so uh, I think that's really important to be able to understand that, that this is the antithesis to what the world... And what's funny is that the 21st century is very much like the 1st century. They thought the same way in the 1st century. They just didn't have social media and digital communication to exploit it. But they thought the same way. In Jesus' time, in Paul's time, for them to talk about humility, submission, and sacrifice, that was mind-boggling to their world. When Paul wrote about humility, people would push back and say, if you're a, a person who embraces humility, if you're humble, you are a person of weakness. Here you go. The first century and the 21st century are both cultures in which vice has become virtue and virtue has become vice. The biblical virtues of humility, submission, and sacrifice are looked upon as vices in our culture. Whereas arrogance and pride and all of these things that are considered Vices in scripture and sin in scripture are looked upon with great favor in our world. Self-righteous people who believe they're virtuous above everybody else, they are proud, self-important, and smug. And that was true then, and it's true now. And that's one way that Jesus is highly differentiated from us. And to follow him means to embrace this, it means that we will embrace this countercultural, counterintuitive understanding of virtue. Paul has a few things to say about Humility, sacrifice, and submission. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. One of the translations puts it this way. Do not allow the world to press you into its mold. But it would love to press you into its mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And then, of course, in Philippians chapter 2, he says it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than you are. That's our call. And then look at the next few verses. This is like the second half of 28 through 33. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard this said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Just let me give you a little insight there. Three times in the Gospels, um, people heard the Father speak from heaven, and they almost always interpreted all of them as thunder, some some natural event, not a supernatural event. And, and it happens here, it happens at Jesus' baptism, and it happens at the transfiguration. And what's interesting is the fact that they almost all interpret it as thunder, as a natural event, and not the supernatural event of the Father speaking to the Son, is an indication of their spiritual blindness. And that's why John includes that part of the narrative here. He's trying to get across that even after all that Jesus has done, people are still blind spiritually to who he uh, really is. Jesus answered, This voice came for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up on, uh, uh, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. A little clarification there. When Jesus says, I will draw all people unto myself, he's not saying that every individual person ever is going to come to him. What he means, what the Greek is saying there, is that he will draw all kinds of people to himself. This passage is right on the heels of him talking to all the non-Jews and saying, come on in. So what Jesus is saying is that all kinds of people from different ethnicities and nationalities and socioeconomic backgrounds and however you vote or educational backgrounds, whatever it is, all are welcome into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice and his resurrection. Um, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the, that the Christ must remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be uh, lifted up? So, God says, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Jesus has talked about he being glorified as well. So what do they mean by glorified? Well, the Father was glorified initially when he sent Jesus. That act of sacrifice, Jesus, who's with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, leaves in order to come down here so that he can be unjustly tried and executed for his teaching and his perfection. That he is going to be glorified for. Something awful happening to him, he'll be glorified for. And his Father is glorified because he's the one who initiated it and sent him. And so Tyler talked about this last couple of weeks, Tyler Thompson did, about how generally the, the glorification of Jesus and of the Father exists through the life, death, burial, uh, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, yes. But specifically here in chapter 12, it is narrowing in on the glory for both the Father and the Son coming from the cross, the humiliation on the cross, the sacrifice on the cross, that's where the glory uh, of God is coming from. But again, it's more than just the idea that God's name was glorified and will be glorified. We have to remember that God's name has always been glorified, eternally, always will be, no matter what we think. There's never a time when his name isn't glorified. Even if we think, I wouldn't have done it that way, God's name is still glorified. 
In fact, that's when it's probably glorified uh, the most. We need to remember Isaiah the prophet tells us that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. So this message is heard by everybody, but it's only understood by Jesus, and so he relays it. And essentially, here's what Jesus says. God wins and salvation is complete. That's what verses 31 and 32 are. God wins and salvation is complete. So the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. What does the judgment mean? Well, certainly it means that there's going to be a separation of those who know Jesus and those who do not know Jesus. It means there's going to be a determination about every person's eternal dwelling place. The sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, their dwelling place. There's only two. That's it. Just two. There's the eternal dwelling place of the new Jerusalem with the absolute presence of God. And then there's the eternal dwelling place of a place called hell with the absolute absence of God. But this judgment also means something else that we need to understand. It is the judgment of this world. Now, why does he say it that way? Why this world? The reason is because the world is disordered. And it was disordered by sin, and it is disordered by sin. Uh, If you've wandered away the last couple of minutes, I want you to come back, because these next five minutes are very heavy, but really important. Okay? What Satan, the ruler of this world, did in the garden in Genesis 3 by getting Adam and Eve to rebel against God and eat the fruit, what he did was to disorder God's perfect ordered creation. That's what sin did. It disordered everything. There was an order in Genesis 2 that you and I have never experienced, but our heart deep inside longs for. Solomon says that eternity has been put in our hearts. We, we, we know it's there. We just can't grasp it because of sin. Everything was broken. We were broken. Creation was broken. Everything was broken, disordered, corrupted by that original sin. That's the curse that we all live under. And by judging the world, Jesus casts out the disorderer of this world and gives us also a shadow by his crucifixion and resurrection, a shadow of the kingdom to come by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his resurrection. And then when he comes again, he's going to usher in the new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is the redeemed and restored paradise and place of order that God has always intended for his creation and his people. God isn't going to wipe this away and start over. He's going to redeem and restore what he has created in the first place. But I find it interesting and have for quite some time now. I taught on this on on, uh, some Wednesday nights three years ago. I find it interesting that the word disorder has fallen into disfavor and even loathing in our culture today. The word disorder has fallen into disfavor and even loathing in our world and in our culture today. Now, why is that? I would argue it's pretty easy to answer, actually. But to answer it is to, here you go, abandon all political correctness and wokeness. And I confess to you, I'm not very woke. So here we go. Here's why disorder has fallen into favor. If the way a person lives their life is in complete rebellion against God and against that which is holy, against that which is rational, against that which is biological, 
against that which is humble, against that which is worthy of honor, and against that which is good and helpful to others, eventually that person will not allow their life or their lifestyle, a life filled with sin and disruption and disorder and trouble and irrationality and weakness, they will not allow themselves to be insulted by being described as disordered. They have to reverse the understanding of vice and virtue and become the virtuous one. That's what's happening in our culture. The expression of my sexuality, my gender, my bias, my pathology, my irrationality, my trouble, or my wickedness is not in fact a disorder. And for anyone to suggest such a thing, including God, they are the ones who are evil. I'm not. That's the world we live in today. Uh, I know some of you are going to go, well, you read that book just to affirm your position. No, I happened upon this book, and it does affirm that position. It's called Cynical Theories. It's written by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. And I know some of you, I know just from experience, are like a couple of right-wing Christian Twinkies, right? No. <laughs> Furthest thing from that, they would be very uncomfortable in here with us. They would be very uncomfortable with any notion of God or religion or Christianity. Read the book and you'll see. They are um, affirmed, self-identifying leftists and progressives. And in fact, Lindsay's an atheist. And they wrote a book about how these critical theories are ruining the human race. Ruining it. Now, the only thing this book doesn't have is they do have an answer in here, and it's a worldly answer. I would add a chapter that says, actually, the answer is the gospel. That's what the answer is. But that's the point. Jesus came because the world is disordered. He came to give us a foretaste of the order that is to come. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. And we need to understand that. That's the world you're going out to, going out in every single day, is this disordered world that is now embracing all of this disorderedness and calling it good, and calling it good. So in the temporal world, the cross, the resurrection, and the filling of the Holy Spirit Enable us to deal with this sin and this disorder here and now. That's the beauty of the gospel. We, we actually have the power not to sin. Now, we're not perfect at it. Can I get an amen? All right, all right I'm not perfect at it. Maybe some of you are. Okay. I didn't say amen there. What is he talking about? We're not perfect at it. In fact, read the second half of Romans chapter 7, where the apostle Paul is wrestling with this point. He fights with his flesh all the time. The apostle Paul has the power not to sin, and he knows he's still sinning and struggling with that. But we do, in fact, have the power to defeat sin now. But later, when Jesus comes again and he ushers in the new Jerusalem, the power of sin will also be destroyed once for all. And the great uh, disorderer, Satan, is going to be destroyed, and death is going to be destroyed. All of that's going to be cast away, and that's all great news, and that is all the gospel. We're fallen in our sin, apart from God. Jesus comes to reconcile us to him, and everything's going to be fine eventually. That's the gospel, and that's why Jesus came. And in verse 32, when Jesus is lifted up, when he is crucified, there are those who were there who celebrated, right? There were people there who were like, finally, we got him, and he's on the cross, and he can't escape now, and he's done. We're done with Jesus. God, we can get life back to normal again. Finally. There were those who celebrated, but there were also those who were drawn to Jesus on the cross. 
They were drawn by his sacrifice and his humility and his teaching even from the cross by example. They were drawn by his humble sacrificial death. And again, that word drawn in that verse there is the same word that's in John chapter 6, verse 46. And the Greek word literally means to drag or to go get. So Jesus, by his humility, by his sacrifice, by his submission to the cross, drags us. He goes and gets us to salvation. His submission to his own unjust execution, that is grace in action. Last three verses, 30, 34 through 36. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. It's just so interesting the, the misunderstandings the people of their time had of who and what the Messiah would be. They were convinced, first of all, that the Messiah was going to be a military Messiah who would defeat Rome, not a Messiah who would humbly go to the cross. So they were wrong about that. He humbly went to the cross, but it, he did that in order to defeat something much worse than the Romans and the Roman government. He went there to defeat Satan, sin, and death. So that was a better game for him to play and win. And, and here we see they were also convinced that the Messiah would never die. Well, actually, the Messiah had to die in order to give us eternal life. Now, if you're wondering, this might be where if you have just a little bit of uh, charismatic theology in you, you would yell out, hallelujah, okay? <laughs> Jesus had to die so that we would live. Okay, that was really encouraging. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> and here's what's really ironic about all of this. Although the Messiah did die, he lives. <laughs> because he came busting out of the tomb three days later. That's our Easter. It's amazing. So he does remain forever. He's sitting there listening to them say that, going, but I am going to remain forever. He doesn't say it out loud, but I know he's thinking it. That's, you know, kind of my cool Jesus, anyway. <laughs> and then he's got more on this light and dark imagery. He's, John talks about this narratively, and Jesus has talked about it. Walking in the light means walking with God. Walking in the darkness means walking without God. Revelation 21 reminds us that in the New Jerusalem, the presence of God is going to be so light and bright that the sun and the moon will be done away with. Because we won't need the sun and the moon. It's going to be awesome. Hell, hell, on the other hand, is going to be dark, dank, obscure, and gloomy. Don't you love that word, dank? I love that word. I've always wanted to use that in a sermon, and I finally got to do it today. After 21 years, I used the word dank. And now you could use it. Here you go. Your goal for this afternoon is to use the word dank in a conversation. Like when you go to lunch, you know, the food server comes over. Is your tuna fish sandwich kind of dank? Just work it in. See what happens, okay? They all have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, hell will be dank. You don't want to be around dank, and you don't want tuna fish this dank either. Walking in the light also means that you're walking in and living in the love, hope, and wisdom of God. Now think about this too. This light and dark theme has been prevalent in the Gospel of John. 
In Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the earth, the first thing God does is what? Separates light from dark. And then at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, the first thing that John says after about the word was, you know, with God and the word is God, is he says, and light is in life. And life is in light. Walking with God means you are walking in the light. And Jesus says, you better believe in the light. Don't go for the darkness. And I know the darkness is comfortable. It's easy. I get that. I get that. But the light is where the true life is and where the true action is. But then this last question comes up. What about when the darkness of this world still surrounds us even though we do walk with God, even though we do walk in the light? What about when our circumstances and situations are broken and painful? There are many psalms that speak to this. I'll go to the most obvious, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a statement of contentment right there. Are you content in Christ? In any and every situation, as Paul says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether with wealth or with poverty, I'm content. The Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I would say that I would, I, I, I'm pretty confident in this, in this assertion that most of us in this room more, need more rest than we're getting. Can I get an amen on that? We need more rest than we're getting. Listen to the Holy Spirit making us lie down. Is there Netflix? Yes. You can lie down on the couch. It's fine. Especially now that it's 100 degrees. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, darkness, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's good that God is for us, but what's more important is that he's also with us. You know, for us is like the way things are going for the sons right now. I was for them when they were up one to nothing. Now, I'm not really for them when they're down two to one. I'm really not for the Lakers either. Nobody could be for them and still know Jesus. But God is, <laughs> but God is with us. No matter what, he's with us, even when LeBron is winning. Okay? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Look at God doing all of this stuff, not us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what God calls us to. And, and in that verse 36, that last verse, Jesus says, with great urgency now, because it's the last week of his life, believe in the light, walk in the light, come to me right now. There's a sense of urgency now. And I feel that urgency even today. And I know in a room like this, most of you know Jesus. Hallelujah. But I also know in a room like this, there are some of you that don't. You're checking it out. You're curious. You're wondering. You're seeking. You're asking questions. Come to the light. Come to Jesus. It's good news. Talk to somebody. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the boldness and the humility of Jesus, and what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us. God, I pray that we would submit our lives to you through Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have a time of reflection, response, um, 
thinking about what's happened in this service up until now, the music, uh, the message, and now the communion, the sacrament. It's a sacrament. Um, if you don't have a communion kit, they're in the lobby. Now would be a great time for you to go and get it. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We are starting to have preliminary conversations about doing communion the way we used to do it pre-COVID. Maybe September, I don't know, we'll see. But for now, we still have these fun little kits with that delicious tasting grape juice. The, the bread, though, Jesus does this. In just a few days, he does this. At the Passover meal, in, in fact. Takes the bread and he says, this is my body. It's for you. And then he takes the cup later on and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and it's for you. Paul reminds us that when we eat the bread and and drink from the cup, that we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. This time of sacrament, this time that we do this, is important and special and essential because it both allows us to confess our need for Jesus and celebrate the fact that we have him. So let's do that now.
last song as our benediction today. Make his face shine. 
He is with you. He is with you in the morning, in the evening, in the coming, in the going, in the weeping, the rejoicing. He is for you. 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 today. Would you go and live all of life, all for Jesus. Amen.